Good morning. It's lovely to see you all here. Uh, lovely to see you all here, despite those who well, I hope are at camp and have had a wonderful time. I was not able to be there, unfortunately. I was doing an officiating at a wedding yesterday, which was really delightful and lovely to officiate at weddings. Uh, it certainly fits in with our series on love, uh, love sex and marriage. Uh, but I'm going to continue our service and our series today following that, but we're going to look at a slightly different topic and take a step back as we look at ideology and how does ideology affect our thinking. And lovely as Carol read this morning, we need to actually look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20 and think through those verses. So I'm going to read those. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, you say. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will, also, he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality, and all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies." Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank and praise you that you are a God who is kind and generous to us. We thank you that you have made us embodied beings, beings who are made for your honour and for your glory, that you have chosen in your great mercy to dwell in us by the power of your spirit. We ask today as we think through how our ideology, how our worldview, how the way we look and move through the world is a statement about what we believe. Help us to understand how sexual unfaithfulness is really uh, an expression of our unfaithfulness towards you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start by a poem. We have a poem this morning. And I want you to listen carefully to this poem and think about the connections it is making. And it's a poem by a man named William Blake. I went to the Garden of Love and I saw what I had never seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the Garden of Love that so many sweet flowers bore. And I saw it filled with graves and in tombstones where flowers should be and priests in black gowns were, were wailing their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. We live in what is often called 
the psychological age. It is also described as the Romantic Age or post-modernity. It is given many different labels by many different things. But the common idea that all these people who give labels to our time give is simply this. The way to know yourself is to look inside yourself, to look within. That is why it is described as the psychological age. To know yourself is to understand, is to measure yourself, to measure your thinking against your own happiness. That the way to find yourself is to liberate yourself from any impediment, from, from following your own heart. The catch cry of our culture is, and the word that really describes its aspirations, freedom. When we are free to do as we please, then we will be happy, then we will be content. If we are free to do as we want, that is when we'll have true joy. And no more is this the case than in our sexual relationships. And that is what William Blake's poem is about. It is a cry for sexual freedom. If you remember way back to the start of this series, Joe was talking about the cultural context of the sexual revolution. He said back then that people want to mock Christian sexual ethics. And the way they often do this is they say that Christians want to take us back to the 50s. Why the 50s? Because it's not the 60s, which was the start of the sexual revolution. But the sexual revolution didn't come out of nowhere. It had its beginnings, it had its genesis, as it were, in the Enlightenment. And that is why I started with this poem, because this poem was written at the beginning of the Enlightenment and it captures very much the spirit of our age. Listen to the words of the poem again. I went to the Garden of Love and I found this chapel there and it had the words over the door of the chapel, thou shall not. That is a clear reference to the Ten Commandments. Blake's idea is instead of finding this delightful, wonderful playground of sexual delights and sexual freedom, what he found instead was a graveyard of tombstones and black garbed priests. I had this image as I read the poem of this is going to sound weird, of dementors from Harry Potter swooping around the garden, sucking all the joy out of life. That is what William Blake is picturing. A garden with all the joy sucked out of it. Our joys, our desires, our heartfelt wishes, bound, tied up, repressed. For Blake... Christianity was an evil, repressive religion that destroyed man's natural, heartfelt desires. And this is a constant theme of our culture. We are constantly told that within our art and our stories that to be authentically human, we must follow our hearts. That to have a fulfilled life, you best follow your heart's desires. Express your heart you'll be happy. Complete the bucket list or you'll die with regret. We live in the age 
of the heart's desires, the psychological age. The secret of life is to follow your heart and fulfil its desires. Now, as I said, today's talk is really to take a step back and to think more deeply about how our thinking affects our sexual ethics. Or to put it in another way, how what we think about God works itself out in the bedroom. The point of the talk is to show how sexual unfaithfulness is a normal, may I say, expected consequence of our unfaithfulness to God. In the coming weeks, we're going to look more seriously and deeply at some of the problems that arise out of sexual uh, sex and marriage, how it goes wrong. But what I want to show today is really the connection the, the Bible makes between our understanding of God and our sexual ethics. And as I say, the big idea is that sexual unfaithfulness really expresses our unfaithfulness towards God. Or to put it more explicitly, what we do in the bedroom really expresses what we believe about God. Now, when we are talking about man's unfaithfulness towards God, you cannot go past its beginning, its conception, as it were, way back in the garden. And we had the reading from Genesis uh, chapter 3, 1 to 7. And I want to focus, as we look on that chapter, mainly on Adam and Eve's initial actions after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is this. From that point on, Adam and Eve were to decide for themselves what was good and evil, irrespective of God. They would no longer listen to God to know what was good and evil. Instead, they would decide good and evil for themselves. And that was the real issue. Because once you are deciding good and evil, you are deciding purpose for yourselves. And here was the problem they had. Once you are deciding the purpose for things on your own initiative, you get to decide the purpose of the person standing across from you as well. Can you imagine that? Everyone else deciding what your purpose is in life. How you can be used for their sake, for their wants, for their desires. That's what Adam and Eve did when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They realised that the other person now would get to decide how and why, or the ways in which they could be used they would get to decide how the opposite person could satisfy their desires, their, their uh, wants. I remember back at college, a lecturer once said to me that the first consequence of sin is insecurity. And it's true, because you never know how the person across from you is going to decide how to use, use you. And so after eating the fruit, what is the first thing they realise? They are naked. And it's not saying they just realised they didn't have any clothes on. What it means to be naked was they realised they were not safe in each other's company. And so the first thing they do is make clothes from themselves. And the Hebrew word is they made a loincloth or a girdle. That is, they cover up what is distinctive about themselves. Their sex organs. 
instead of recognising the good differences which existed between them, they try to hide and cover over those differences. And as you watch them cover up their sexuality, you feel the loss of security at the end of Genesis chapter 2. We read at the end of Genesis 2, they were naked and felt felt no shame. Now, though, you can almost hear the passage say, they are now ashamed, and they're ashamed of their sexuality. It always fascinates me that when non-Christians talk about these passages, Genesis 3, they frame the original sin as sex. But I think this says more about non-Christians than it says about us. It tells us what they are really ashamed of. In so doing, they ignore the first command of the Bible, which is implicitly to have sex, fill the earth, subdue it, produce babies. But man's first action upon sinning is to cover over his sexuality. That is, they distort sex. And God emphasises this point when he curses the woman. Her desire will be to take the place of her husband, but he will rule, he will dominate her. The consequence of the original sin was to initiate a battle of the sexes, its first casualty being God-honouring sex itself. And that is the, a big point of Genesis chapter 3, that man's unfaithfulness to God led to unfaithfulness towards each other, and most especially in this area of sexuality. There is a connection between the way we think about God and the way we treat each other. And no more is this the case in the area of sexuality. The reason I think that sexual relationships become so distorted has to do with us being in a relationship with God, or in our case, our rejection of that relationship. Being created in the image of God means that we are fundamentally meant to relate to him. And the way we relate with others should be a reflection of the way we relate with God. You can see this connection in the summation of the commandments that we just read. When Jesus asked which is the greatest commandment, what is his answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. The reason the second command is like the first is because every single person is created in God's image. To love your neighbour is to love the image of God in your neighbour. The way we treat others is a reflection of the way we treat God. And no more is this the case than in sexual relationships of marriage because sex is the most intimate relationship two people can share. In rejecting God, we refuse to reject the good gift of sex and to use it in a way that honours God. And because of this rejection, man or or humanity abuses sex and therefore people abuse and use sexual others as just things to fulfil our desires, our wants. And the idea, as I keep on repeating, is simply this. What we think always comes out in the way we treat others. And our 
sexual unfaithfulness is a direct reflection of our spiritual unfaithfulness. No place you see this more than in Romans 1. And I'm just paraphrasing. Because they refused to honour him as God, God gave them over to the futility of their thinking to do what ought not to be done. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their error. For their error. Now, Joe will be looking at the LGBT issue in the next couple of weeks. I'm not raising this point to make a point about sexu- uh, homosexuality. My point is to highlight the connection the passage is making between theological unfaithfulness and sexual unfaithfulness. That is, it's clearly linked in the passage. That is why the, the talk is titled Sex and Idolatry. The way we think about God will always be reflected in the way we treat others and most especially in this area of sexual ethics. And I want to consider just three ways this unfaithfulness is expressed in our culture. These are very broad categories and there's more than these, but these categories are deliberately broad and they're on your sheet so as to give us an idea and highlight how this works out in the way we live our lives and I'm labelling these ideas simply sensuality, security and success. As I said, they're broad ideas but when people use sex badly they will generally fit into one of all of these categories. It's not like these categories are uh, distinct ideas from one another, they do flow into each other. They are categories that work together but These are categories to help us understand how our unfaithfulness towards each other really comes out as an expression of our unfaithfulness to God. And the first category that I'm looking at is the category that I'm calling sensuality. Or, I like the way sex makes me feel, so I'll have it with anyone I want whenever I want. That is, people having and abusing sex because it feels good. Now, you often hear people in this case talking about sex as a need. And this is very common in our society. The whole porn industry is basically built around this idea. The idea is that humanity is nothing but flesh. All we are is matter. And if all we are is just matter, then nothing matters. People who think this way would like to think that there is nothing beyond the physical, that sex is just a thing that the human body does to feel good, that any relational attachments, the superglue that Joe has been talking about, is just made up by religion to make people feel bad about sex. You hear the argument put something, you often put something like this, the human body has needs, I have needs, Therefore, having sex is a need like eating or breathing. Surely not eating and breathing would be bad for me. Therefore, I ought to have sex when I feel the need. I wish the arguments were better and more sophisticated than this, but most of the time, no. Certainly, there are more sophisticated versions of these arguments. The poem I recited at the start is clearly one of those. But the idea is that we are just flesh and our desires are just that, desires. In a strange way, they are saying that the body doesn't matter, 
that what we do with our body has no real consequence beyond how we feel in the moment. But what all these arguments are doing are denying that we are created in God's image. What we're trying to do in a strange paradox when we use these arguments is really transcend our creatureliness. Use and abuse the body because it doesn't matter. Refuse to accept God's image in the person you are utilising for your own pleasure. But when you do this, what you're really doing is refusing to acknowledge the image of God that is within you. The body becomes just a disposable toy, here today, gone tomorrow. And that is what's taking place in the Corinthian church. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you will see that they are treating sex in this manner. In this manner. It doesn't matter that a man has sex with his father's wife. We are just flesh and the flesh doesn't matter. And you see the consequences of the argument later when Paul quotes the Corinthians. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. And stomach is for food. And what's Paul's response? But God will destroy them both. It might appear that Paul agrees with them, but he is not. The Corinthians are saying that the way we treat the world is irrelevant because all it is is matter. To quote Philip Jensen without the dodgy imitation, if the universe is only matter, then nothing matters. But we know this is wrong. We are not atheists. Because if you push the Corinthian argument to its logical conclusion, that's where you'll end up, in atheism. But Paul counters the Corinthians' argument in chapter 6. His counter-argument is that God will judge everything. It will all be weighed before God. So the way we use his creation is subject to his judgment. And right after chiding the Corinthians for their attitude towards the creation, he explicitly says there is no place for sexual immorality in the church. Why? Because the body is a temple, is a dwelling for the spirit of God. God is related intimately with us. He is close to us. He is within us. It matters the way we treat our bodies. Separating the creation from its God-given purposes just so we can have a moment of fleeting pleasure is foolishness. God is within us. Treat your bodies as God's temple. Which leads to our second category, what I'm calling security. In this group, it is a group that use marriage or sex for the hope of what it will give them, of the relational experience they're hoping they to, to get. It's different from the first group in that it's not about pleasure, but it's about the hope of a relationship, of longing to connect to something. This is the grass is greener on the other side group. I think singles can easily fall into this group. 
I know I was certainly one of these before I became a Christian. I thought that the married life would give me everything I could possibly hope for or desire. It is constantly looking to put uh, our relational aspirations in another human person. But it's not just singles who can fall into this. Whether it be in a marriage or de facto, we can fall into the desire or the hope that the person across from us will fulfil all our relational wants and desires. They can fulfil us and make us happy. I remember I was speaking to this person. They were in trouble with the law. They had gotten drunk and they had hit their partner. They knew they had done the wrong thing. But as this person spoke about the relationship, he couldn't see why it had had happened. He was in a de facto relationship and he spoke quite highly about his partner. They had had a few kids and he was quite fit and he was a good-looking young man. And what had happened was his partner had become quite jealous of him and was hitting him quite often and he just lost it one night and hit her back. And she was always worried that he might leave her. And that is why he was, she was jealous of him. And that is why she was hitting him. So you, would, you could expect to see the shock upon his face when I explained to him as he was telling me that it was really his fault. And, it, and it, what it had happened was this girl had found... Uh, or his partner had found another girl's phone number, a work colleague, on his phone. And she had become quite jealous. And he is saying to me, but I had given her everything. I love her and I care for her. I have become her everything. There is nothing I wouldn't do for her. I keep on saying to her, I will be there for you. I am your everything. And I said to this guy, do you not understand what you have done? You have become her God. Of course she's jealous of you. Of course she's worried that you're going to leave. If you leave, she loses her whole reason for being. You have become her God and you can't do it. Seeking to find fulfilment in another human person will always crush the relationship. I have seen it over and over and over again. People putting way too much stock in the person who is across from them. And what it comes from is this idea that we are not directly related to God. It is ignoring the relationship that God has given us. One of the interesting passages, and this is not Paul's point, but it always amazes me is when Paul is speaking to the Athenians on the Areopagus and he says as part of his indictment against their treating of God, he says, God has put each man in every place so that he could reach out and find him, not that he is far from any of us. And the idea is that God is right with us, we just don't turn around and look for him. But as a Christian, I always look at that passage and I am always greatly encouraged. And the reason I'm always greatly encouraged as a Christian is that I know that God is just there. I know that God is my most significant relationship. I know that God is with us at all points and all times. I say to marriage couples, 
when they when I'm doing marriage counselling all the t uh, with them all the time. Do not place your hopes and your expectations or your desires that belong to God on your marriage partner. If you do that, you will crush them. Our most important, and most significant, the relationship that is most dear to us all and should be most dear to us all is the relationship we have with God. God is with us at all points of time and space. He cares for us. He loves us. He is our most significant other. And we've got to remember that as we live out our lives. To put that on another human being, it's unfair and it destroys relationships. Which leads to our final one, one that I'm to, uh, category that I'm to, determining or calling success. Or, to put it in the biblical term, making a name for ourselves. This final category uses relationships to define themselves. It's the guy that has the trophy wife. And it's, it's a similar to the category above, but it is different. And it's different in this way. People use sex to identify as a means of defining themselves. That is, we find our identity in our sexuality. And the most obvious group who do this is the LGBT crowd. Just the acronym alone says it all. The most important aspect about me is the way that I have sex. And I find that quite sad. Can you imagine the most important aspect about you being the way you define yourself and the way you have sex? That our humanity is tied up, that our very being is tied up in, and purpose for being in having sex. But the LGBT crowd are not the only ones who do this. It happens in most of our schoolyards. Now, most of you wouldn't have heard the man or the name Andrew Tate. Andrew Tate was just depersoned this week from social media. And Andrew Tate had 4.7 million followers on Instagram, plus many more on Facebook and other social media sites. That's basically a population the fifth the size of Australia watched or listened to what Mr Tate said. So he was quite an influential figure, even when he was kicked off the social media. Now, why was uh, Mr Tate so interesting? Why was he so heavily followed? Mr Tate was a mega chad. And you go, what is a chad? For those who don't know what a chad is, a chad is a stud. Now, Mr Tate was banned for misogyny because Mr Tate put on uh, his sexual exploits on social media. And he said that he was wealthy, he was famous, he was successful. And so people wanted to follow him, they wanted to be him. Many young men wanted to be just like him because he slept with any woman he pretty much said he wanted. And it was that last one that caused him so many problems because he used women for sex to make a name for himself. And he was not scared to share it. And so the young men followed him. They thought, that is the more, most important thing. That is what I aspire to. 
In rejecting God, we reject God's definition of us. And in so doing, we seek to define ourselves and we use sex to define ourselves. It's the Tower of Babel all over again. I'm going to make a tower that reaches up to the heavens and I'll make a name for myself. If you haven't realised it yet, the internet is just the latest iteration of the Tower of Babel. That's what it is. And we use it to define ourselves. And you can see how the connection comes from the previous poem. But what must be said is Christians must not find their identity in sex. That is disastrous. It doesn't matter that if we're defining ourselves in our marriages or in our singleness or in whatever. Our definition, our reason for being, our identity must come from God. This is what Paul says in Galatians. For those of you who are baptised in the Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now, this passage in Galatians is about identity. And the most important thing you need to realise and notice about this passage is saying the most important aspect of you is your relationship to God. The third commandment. What is the third commandment? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. That commandment is about identity. Be who you've been made to be. What is our identity? What is the most fundamental relationship we have? Christian. We are Christ's people. How does Christ define us? Again, thinking about marriage passages, Ephesians chapter 5. Thinking about what God says to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to present her holy and blameless in his sight. We have all been unfaithful to God. But in God's mercy and his kindness, he sent his son to die for us, to bring us back into the fold, to make us his children, to give us our identity, to relate to us because we matter and we matter to God. Sexual unfaithfulness, and this is the final idea I want you to leave with, Sexual unfaithfulness, or more importantly, sexual faithfulness is a gift of God. God is not being mean. God is not a killjoy. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. That being the case, sexual faithfulness is the gift of God. And it is given to those God loves. And it is for our sake and our glory that God gives us the gift of sexual faithfulness to express the faithfulness he has 
towards us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich blessings you give us in Christ. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful and kind. We thank you for the gift of sex, the good gift of sex that you have given us. And we pray, Father, that we use it in a manner that is honouring you, is glorifying you and is teaching just how wonderful you are. We thank you that you have given us the joy of sexual faithfulness and help us to lead that sexual faithfulness out in our lives as we express our love and our joy towards you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.